I actually have um, a sermon that kind of the whole setup was it was it had to do with the evening service because we're having a pig roast, so I'm going to talk about feasting today a little bit. Um, I've been reading this book. It's funny, a number of years back, someone, um, this book by Tim Keller, it's called Prodigal God. It's really a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. We're going to have a gajillion of them in the bookstore. You should read it if you haven't. I'm going to do a sermon series on it, actually. It's by a guy named Timothy Keller. Here's something ironic, though, that I'll share with you, is that a number of years back, I was working at, this, at a, a church, and I'd never heard of Tim Keller, didn't know who he was or whatever, and someone bought me for a Christmas present a sermon, you know, a, for a whole year, uh, his sermons. They bought me his sermons for a whole year, and I got addicted to him, hooked on him, and I, I love him. He's just an amazing thinker. Ironically, I'm preaching on him today, and those people, for the first time, have come to visit us at River City Church. I'm not going to embarrass them who they are, but uh, yeah, this, is, this church is your fault, so there you go, all right? But um, The Prodigal God is basically a book written about the prodigal son, and Tim Keller does an amazing job of kind of opening this story up so that we see the true meaning of it. And in the true meaning of it, and I'm not going to get into it because I do, I want to do a sermon series on the, the prodigal son that left. I want to do a sermon and then another, uh, one talk on that and one talk on the elder brother and then on God's response to both of them. But I read the first four chapters and I skipped to the last one so I could do my sermon because it's on the feast. And I'm going to talk about that today. But um, basically the story starts with Jesus being criticized by the Pharisees for hanging out with sinners, hanging out with drunks, hanging out with prostitutes. And the Pharisees are saying, like, why are you hanging out with these people? That's wrong. And the top of uh, Luke 15, then we see these three parables that come right after that. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. And he talks about the lost sheep being found, the lost coin being found, and then the prodigal sons, one of which is found. The other one remains lost, which is interesting. And again, you've got to read the book or listen to my sermons whenever they come out to figure out why that is. But uh, it's an amazing depiction of God's greatness and, and God's love. And the Father's desire ultimately is to invite us all into a feast. And what I want to talk about today is the reality that our relationship with Christ, the invitation that God has for us is to a party. And that our relationship with Christ should feel like a party. There should be elements of it when things are as they should be, that are fun and joyful and filled with laughter, the things that we would experience at a party. And and I want to talk about, and Tim Keller does this in the last chapter of the book, he talks about the importance of our relationship with Jesus being experiential. And with the Holy Spirit conference coming up, I thought, man, what a great kind of platform to kind of prime the pump and, uh, you know, for us to be prepared for the conference. And so we're going to start this morning with the reading of the prodigal son. It's a little long, but it's a great story. If you've heard it before, follow along. I'll be reading in Greek. And he said, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I know, not that you talk that seriously. And then he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, just in the beginning, there's a man who had two sons. That tells you what the story's going to be about. Both sons, not just one of them. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, Self, how, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your, I'm sorry, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your spirit coming now, opening the eyes of our heart, clearing our minds so that we would see the truth that is in this scripture, the invitation from a father who has been taken advantage of by both sons, by the rule keeper and by the prodigal, the one who has just gone for it in the world. Father, that you have invited both of them and that you have invited each of us to the feast, the greatest feast, the greatest party that Jesus has created for us and life that comes with him. And so, Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would come now, and that each of us would feel a tugging in our heart in your direction so that we might find life to the full that Jesus offers. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so I'm not going to unpack all in that story. I want to skip to the end. This reality that our relationship with Jesus is experiential. And, 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 even, and even in a bigger picture, as a church, when we think about the kingdom of God, when we think about what it's like to be in the kingdom of God as individuals and as a church, when we think about our responsibility as a church to reflect the kingdom of God to the world, what should it look like? Should it be something that people who are dirty don't feel like they can come to? Should it be something that prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards don't feel like they can be a part of that they're not attracted to? I was reading another book and it just felt so convicted. Actually, it was a magazine on, on leadership in the church. And it was talking about this article. It's called Wounded by the Church. And it talked about in, in the contrast in this culture to, you know, to the, the, first, the early church when Jesus was, you know, walking the earth. It said, it said you know, when Jesus was here, it were all, you know, all the sinners were attracted to him. All the sinners wanted to be around him. All the sinners were hanging out with him. And these parables were, uh, Jesus was addressing weren't to them, it was, it was usually to the Pharisees who were judging and being harsh and condemning. 
in, in, the, in the article, go back to the article, the article was contrasting the church today and how we've kind of filled ourselves with Pharisees at the expense of having people who are sinners desiring to want to be with Jesus. Because no one likes to hang around Pharisees. And we've, heard, we've all heard the quotes, you know, I like your Jesus but not your church. You know, I think Gandhi said that or something. You know, there's just lots of people like that. And I thought, yeah, that is just so wrong. And so when we think about our job as a church, we think about our role as a church in Jacksonville, getting after our piece of the pie, you know, what's a better reflection? A church service of the kingdom of God? A church service or a party? A barbecue? A feast like we had last night? I mean, I mean if you got to invite your neighbor who was lost or who was a sinner, who didn't know Jesus, to one of the two, church or a barbecue, which would you choose to invite them to? I'm saying barbecue, even at River City Church. As much as I love our church, as much as I feel like we're welcoming to people who are outside of the church, as much as I feel like we really work hard to love people, if I got to choose something to invite a non-believer to that is still worshipful, barbecues and feasts, we see them in Scripture as a demonstration of God's people coming together to celebrate the goodness of God, I would choose the party. And God makes this point again and again and again. Starting in the Old Testament, he would gather his nation together to have these feasts and these celebrations of who God was to remind them so they wouldn't forget his goodness. Yet whenever we get tied on money at River City or other churches, you know, what do we cut off? The, you know, the additions. You know, the parties, the fun stuff. When I would say those are the most important things that we do that reflect the kingdom of God. Those are the things that, that we reflect in the world that says, hey, come and have fun. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a part of our church family. This is what God invites you to. I mean, that's pretty exciting. I mean, I, mean, I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me. You know, because I like to have fun. I like to party. I like to have fun. You know, I like to get it on with Jesus and having fun, you know, going for it and stuff. It's fun and exciting. Maybe I should just say get it on with Jesus. That was, that was have a bad connotation. But, you know, but anyway, you get what I'm saying, all right? You know, as a, you know if we really want to be a church that's inviting people, that is after the lost, we should be having parties a lot more. And, and last night was amazing. I mean, my son, my youngest son, Blake, was running around with the pig head like this, like running around the parking lot. I was like, ooh, that reminds me of Lord of the Flies. That's not good, probably. That's his innate boyness coming out, you know. But, um, you know, he's just running around. He's having fun. He's, and he, first he had the leg. You know, he's running around, ee, ee, you know, like tempting people with the leg around the parking lot. Just having a flat. I mean, people who don't come to our church were here and just, we were just having a great party. And God continually, through the Old Testament and the New Testament, he draws his people together to celebrate, tells them to celebrate the goodness and the blessing of who he is, who he's created. This is what my family looks like. Come together and party. Come together and have a good time. Come and experience the kingdom of God. That's our job as the church. Set the table so that when people come and spend time with us, they're experiencing the kingdom of God. And it looks like a party. It feels like a party. And so, should our relationship with Jesus, individually, the language of the New Testament, the language of the Old Testament, is language that invites us into this reality or this relationship with Jesus with the understanding that our life is so sinful, our life is so broken, our life is so painful, our life is It's filled with so much chaos 
that if our relationship with Jesus is not experiential, it will come up short. That it's not enough to just think correctly about who Jesus is. To really make it in this world. To really become who God's created us to be on this side of heaven. Our relationship with Jesus should lead to experience. An experience of his love. You know, in John 2, Jesus' first miracle, we see him uh, at this wedding feast, this wedding party, okay? And many of you may know this story. Some of you might not, but this is what happens. He's at this party, and the bridegroom runs out of wine. And so Jesus basically turns the water into wine. And it's not just any water. It's like the water used to wash feet. And it's not just any amount of wine. It's 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. And it's not just any wine. It's like the best wine. The best wine. And so the question is, why did Jesus choose for his first miracle to be turning water into wine at a party? What is, that trying, what, what, what is the gospel writer John trying to communicate to us? Well, the gospel writer says this was a sign to what, of what Jesus' ministry was going to be like. So he doesn't, like, dismiss it at all. It says, like, ooh, he slipped, kind of like, ooh, he touched the water and it turned to wine. This one was an accident. His real ministry starts when he, you know, he goes to the leper colony, jumps up and down, and they all rise from, you know, and they're all healed and stuff. That's what I probably would have done, you know. But Jesus chooses, what the gospel writer of John says is Jesus chooses for his first miracle to be turning, at this party, to be turning stank water into the best wine. You know, and, and, and it's just interesting, I think. I don't want to get into this. I don't want to offend anyone. But I just think it's interesting that he didn't, like, make more meat or, like, turn more bread. I mean, he, it could have done anything. But, like, he chose wine. You know, I know some of you are like, well, that was, like, watered down. You know, it was, like, so that the water was purified and, and uh, it wasn't really the strength of the wine that we have today. Come on. It was wine. It was wine, and Jesus drank it. I'm just saying, all right? But why is that? Like, why would Jesus do that? Like, why would he start his ministry in the gospel where he says, and he intentionally started his ministry with a miracle at a banquet feast where he did something that would make it a joyous occasion? Because, this is why. Want to know why? You do want to know why. You should want to know why, because this is good news to us. Because Jesus throws the best parties. That's, the, that's why. Jesus throws the best parties. And it's like, you know, in Luke 4, whenever he says, I've come to do this and this and this, heal the captive, set, the pre, you know, set people free, people who are blind will see, see people who are here, you know, deaf will hear. He said, and that's kind of his inaugural statement in Luke. His inauguration, his inaugural speech in, in John is, Woo, we are going to party like it's 1999. I know some of you weren't born then, but we are going to party. This is what my kingdom looks like. It looks like a party. If you know me, life feels like a party. If you come in a relationship with me, everything's changed. In the midst of your sorrow and brokenness and chaos, I bring a party vibe. I bring life. I bring love. I bring hope. I bring joy. I bring healing. I restore that which is broken. I make what is dead come to life. I take what is in the dark and I bring it into the life. That feels like a party. And so it was no accident. It was very intentional. And it's very important for us to take scripture seriously and to say if that's true 
then does my life measure up? Do I feel like as I follow Jesus, as I engage with Jesus, as I love Jesus, that he, that it's like a party? Or am I like the elder brother who doesn't want to come in? I'm about the rules. I'm about the regulations. I'm about the obedience. But there's no joy. There's no happiness. There's no love. Or am I like the prodigal, the son who said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to go party on my own. I see what you offer, Jesus. I feel like I'm created for partying. I feel like I'm created for life to the full. Thank you. But I'm going to go find it in the world. You see, that's the truth. That's the reality. Is that God has created. You know, you've heard that God's created um, you know, a hole in our heart that only he can, he can fill. Well, that hole looks like a party. That hole looks like life to the full. And only Jesus can fill it. But Jesus calls us to a life that is full of fun, full of excitement, full of life to the full. I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean we're not supposed to suffer? No. But that means that we don't go looking for it. Does that mean that we're not going to struggle? No. Jesus tells us, in this world, you will have tribulation. But I've overcome the world. I'm just saying that when we're experiencing Jesus, when we're experiencing life with him to the full, on this side of heaven, it will feel like, it will be like a party. I mean, it says, I mean, God says, you know, I set the table of the lamb, you know, banquet of the lamb. I mean, we're going to a party. That's where we're going to end up in heaven. It will be like a party. And if Jesus' prayer is, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what is that talking about? If heaven's going to be like a party, then what should earth feel like? It should be like a party in the midst of suffering and brokenness. That's what it will be like. Yet I know some of us, we hear this, we're like, oh boy, this is what I've heard about the church. This is all, you're all about the experience, Antley. You know, it's all, no, I'm not. I'm all about the gospel making sense in my life as well as my head. I'm all about the excitement that comes from following Jesus being real because my life is jacked up. My life is broken. My life is filled with pain and worry and anxiety. And if I'm not experiencing Jesus as a party, then what's the point? What's the point? If we're not careful, this is the danger, being in the Bible belt. If we're not careful, it's easy to reduce the gospel of Jesus Christ to good, solid information that we believe. Almost like, you know, a legal justification. And, and the Bible talks about and equates what Jesus has done for us in legal terms, all through the Old Testament and even in the New. It talks about, you know, we deserve, because of, because of our sin, it, it uses the language, the penalty for sin, the consequence for sin is death. Yet while we were still sinners, Jesus stepped in for us and took that death upon himself so that the judgment, the punishment that we deserved goes to Christ so that we then can be made right with God. It's easy to think that, to hear that, to see that as a legal action in our life and for it to stay here. But if it only stays there, if it doesn't transform or 
move into changing our life to experiencing Jesus, to experiencing the gospel, what I just described as the gospel, the good news, to changing how we live, how we deal with anxiety, how we deal with pain, how we deal with suffering, how we deal with physical problems, emotional problems, and spiritual problems, then it's just a theory. It's another theoretical truth that we think correctly about but never experience. When Jesus says, come to me, I I want to give you rest. I want to give you, I want your life to be different. The Bible insists on using sensory language all through it to describe God and our relationship with him. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. My son, eat honey for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. And it's making all these comparisons about what we think to experience, okay? This is what it should be like. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, yada, 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 forgot the rest. All right, Acts 17, 27. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Not think their way toward him and find him, but feel their way toward him and find him. I mean, that's an amazing statement. I mean, we feel, we have to think correctly also. We think correctly, but it should lead towards us moving based on what we're feeling and experiencing towards Christ. In Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp unto my feet. A light unto my path. Amy Grant. Okay, here we go. Jonathan Edwards said this. Jonathan Edwards was probably the, the, the most, as, in terms of American theologians, the best. The best of the best. Extremely heady, extremely smart, extremely analytical in his approach, or legalistic in his approach towards the gospel, but very grace-oriented. He's a Reformed theologian, brilliant, brilliant mind. God blessed the church with him in a time where the church was all over the map. Huge, huge inspiration. His wife, however, was um, someone who was known for being very experiential in her relationship with Christ. Drunk in the spirit. There's stories about her being filled with the spirit to the point where she would fall over and do all these crazy things. And so Jonathan, but this is, so this is Jonathan Edwards, heady, theological, brilliant guy, says this about our experience, what our experience with Jesus should be like. There is a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense on the heart of that loveliness and beauty, of that holiness and grace. The difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of its sweetness. It's one thing to believe that God is loving, that God is gracious, that God is forgiving. It's a whole other thing, though, to experience that belief in a way that our life changes. When we believe in and trust in the work of Jesus for us, through the Holy Spirit, his work becomes real to our hearts. His love is like honey. His love becomes like wine. And rather than only believing that he is loving in our minds, we need to come to a sense of reality that it has to become real in our hearts and in our life. His love for you can become more powerful in your life, more transformational in your life than the person, than any other person, than any other tangible human being. His love can become more real and more impactful. Last week we had someone here 
um, from another church, and they were visiting, and uh, I talked to him after the service. I said, well, I said, how was it? It was a friend of mine. I just want to know, how, like, how was it? We hate you. You're leading a cult. But anyway, they said, uh, they said, um, they said, they said, I don't know how to explain. It. They said this. It was amazing. And she was sitting there, and she said, um, when, when you'd finished speaking, and you invited the Holy Spirit to come, we began to worship. I just felt this wave of love, and I just wept and wept and wept all through worship. She's like, I just felt the Holy Spirit loving me. And again, she goes to like a mainstream church in Jacksonville, and just said, I want to come back. I want to experience this more. You know, this is, I mean, this, it was amazing to her. She's, she had never experienced anything like that. But that's a great example of where her, she'd been a Christian for a long time, where her understanding of love, her knowledge of love, transformed her experience of Jesus and trusting Jesus in a way that, whoo, I want more of that. That feels like a party. That feels like something I want to be a part of. I mean, think about it. If you're filled with shame and guilt, you don't need to just believe in the abstract concept of God's mercy. If you're filled with, with, you know, shame and guilt, it's because you've done something wrong, right? And you feel guilty about it. You feel ashamed about it. And Jesus says, bring that to me, and I'll take it away. And you believe that in your head. But unless you come and experience God's mercy in a real way. And again, God's mercy says, yeah, you screwed up. But guess what? I love you anyway, and I got something for you. Boom, love. Boom, it feels like a party. You know? Is that awesome or what? You're feeling like guilt. This is, the, this is us. Oh, I'm guilty. I'm shame. I looked at pornography again, or I'm just so self-conscious of my weight. I hate this, and no boys like me. I'm just a loser. You know, and you're walking around full of shame and guilt or whatever for doubting God and who he created you to be. You feel horrible, and you come down, and you say, Lord, I just need to, I need to experience your mercy. I know you don't see it. You see me as glorious. Anley said so. He's the best church leader in Jacksonville because I go to his church. I mean, you wouldn't be here. I've made the point. You wouldn't be here unless you thought I was the best. There's lots of other places you could go. But you've chosen this. Anyway, that's an old another sermon. It's four weeks ago. But anyway, so you're like all guilty and all bummed out and all bummed and whatever. And all of a sudden, you're like, God's like, gosh, you did screw up. You are a mess. I got something for you. Boom! And all of a sudden, you're like, woo! That feels like a party. That's what God's love's like. That guilt is gone. The shame is gone. I mean, that's the proof that's in the, you know, that's the reality that we're after. We're not after emotions. We're not after experiences. We're after transformation, right? I mean, that's what we need. We need our life to be different. We need our life to change. And rule, you know, the elder son, I'm going to teach on this. It's such a great sermon. It's going to be awesome. Based on what Keller says, nothing with me. You know, just the elder son is about the rules. And he's trying to manipulate the father based on rules. And he holds on so tight to his life that he never experiences the party. I just fear so many of us are like that elder son. If I just obey, if I just do this right, if I just give, if I go to church, I do all these things right, then God owes me. That's dangerous equivalent to idolatry, but again, I'll get into that in a few weeks, but we just miss it because we think it's about the rules. We think it's about our behavior, our conforming, and, and, and again, we don't, we don't obey because we have to. We obey because we love and we want to. 
And the only way I would be motivated to change the way I live is if I really felt love. You know, what keeps me faithful to Laura is an emotional love, compassion that I have for her and passion that I have for her, not a head knowledge. That won't get it done. But it's my emotional connection of of love to her. That wasn't me getting emotional. Of love to her. Unless you're at home listening to the web stream money. (laughs) That was tough. But um, it's my heart. It's my passion in my heart to bring joy and life to her. That's what keeps me faithful. And I lose my job. But anyway, God wants us all. God wants us all to experience this love. He wants us all to have this, you know, this this party feeling when it comes to him. It's what he, he's died for. It's, what he, it's, 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 it's why he's done everything that he's done. It's because he sees us and he says, man, life is too painful. And it will continue to be. But when things are right with me, it will feel like a party. Even in the midst of that brokenness that comes in the world. And, and I don't, you know, we don't know how that always works out. But we know certainly We've gone through trials and tribulations in our life that God reaches in and the trial remains, the brokenness remains, the struggle remains, but Jesus somehow comes in and gives us rest and peace. And it feels unlike the world. It feels like a party that he's invited us to. I want to end with this quote from Sir Isaac Watts. He says this. He's written a bunch of hymns. The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. Let's all sing that together. The hill of... I'm just kidding. Don't do that. (laughs) I don't even know how that tune would go. The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. I don't know how that... The tune of that one, I'm going to find it. But anyway, what he's saying is, look... The mountain of God, the reality of God, the kingdom of God yields a thousand blessings, a thousand supernatural experiences that are sweet, that taste good, that are unlike anything in this world before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. I mean, great line, great reminder, great hope that will lead us now into ministry. I want to taste you know, that's what we do when we have prayer ministry at the end. We say, come Holy Spirit. We're just saying, God, you know, bam, I want some of that, you know. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> dude, dude, don't have a heart attack. Butler just in the front row. <laughs> that would be horrible. I've never done that before. <laughs> okay. Clear. All right. You know, when we have ministry, we're just inviting God to come and be God, you know? And what God does, God does. You know, some people might, you know, I don't know what happens in ministry. It ha- it's different for everyone. Someone ca- came and they were healed of something physical. We've seen so much transformation of people's hearts, though. It's amazing. We've seen so many people experience God's love. It's amazing. I mean, Betty's testimony of last night, what you don't know is the suffering that she's gone through. You don't know a lot about her life and the stuff that she's dealt with. For her to have an experience last night where she is joyful and God just comes in and just does something that she could never have done on herself. 
Well, we've seen that happen again and again and again. My question to people is always, why wouldn't you come for ministry? Why wouldn't you come to experience God's love? His promise is the kingdom is like a banquet. It's like a feast. Wouldn't you come inside and be a part of that? Well, that's the invitation this morning. So why don't we stand? And i just like everyone to stay plugged in. We have, you know, 25 more minutes left.